Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. For those of you I haven't met, I am Pastor John, one of the pastors here at Stonebridge, and we've been going through a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. We've actually been looking at Matthew since Christmas time, and we're coming to the end of our time in Matthew, just a few more weeks here. But in this series, we've been looking at parables, those stories that Jesus tells to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven looks like. So I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 50. And I invite you to hear the word of God, word of God, the word of God. You know what I mean? Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and please join me in prayer. Lord, you give us these stories, these parables, so that we can see your kingdom more clearly. But it's easy for us to be distracted. When we come to these stories, we can bring so much of our own past, our own understanding into it, and miss what it is you're actually pointing us towards. So this morning, we ask that you would clear our sight. Open up our eyes so that we can see what it is you're pointing us towards, what it is you're urging us towards, what it is we should be pursuing, Lord. Clarify your scriptures for us. Illuminate them so that we can see clearly, Lord. We thank you. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. These three parables that I just read, they typically are read together in a sequence, and they're structured together intentionally by Matthew. But reading them, I get a little sense of one of these things is not quite like the others. The first two focus on pursuing the kingdom of heaven, saying that it's a pearl of great price, that it's a treasure in a field, that you should sell everything you have and pursue the kingdom of heaven. But then that third one ends on that note of fish being sorted, the good and the bad, the fiery furnace, judgment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you were here last week, you know that I promised you that this week we would get into the whole weeping and gnashing of teeth thing, and we are going to do that. These passages, though, the ones of punishment, the ones of weeping and gnashing of teeth, passages that we would relate to the idea of hell, they carry a lot of emotion with them. So as we go through this, I do want to be careful and recognize that the idea of hell has been used to manipulate people for thousands of years now. It has been used to control behavior, to make people feel a sense of fear and to manipulate them. It, these passages have been abused very often. 
And what I've found is in conversations about the idea of hell, on the one hand, you'll get some people who think it's uncomfortable and they just don't want to believe it exists and they just don't want to talk about it. So they just say, I don't buy it. On the other hand, though, you'll find people where it seems like all they want to talk about is hell. They've listened to some preacher, somebody who was charismatic, a fiery speaker. Do you get it? Fiery? Come on. Come on. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Greg's not there. But they listened to some preacher who convinced them, who was so charismatic that they just accepted it and they never really questioned it. And what I find is in these conversations, very often what is actually said in the Bible gets missed. It gets overlooked. It gets taken out of context. So one of my commitments here is that our beliefs, our ideas, should actually be rooted in what the Bible really says. Not just what we've heard, not our own traditions. And some of the stuff that I might say here, it may make you uncomfortable. It may burst a bubble for you. It may challenge something that you've believed. But that's okay. Because at the end of the day, our goal is to have our beliefs rooted in the actual words of Scripture, in the actual Bible. When Jesus would debate with the Pharisees, one of the things that he criticized them for the most was that they were too attached to their traditions, so they missed what God had actually revealed. We have to make sure that we're not too attached to our traditions. So we are going to be looking at the idea of hell in the Bible this morning. I want to say this last week, I did a deep dive into hell. And it was torture. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Though I did, uh, I did wear my fiery pepper shirt today on purpose. So with these three parables, I want to start with the ending. And we are going to get to those other two parables first, but I want to start with the ending here. And when I'm talking about the idea of hell and the weeping and gnashing of teeth and all that, I'm going to define that here as hell is an eternal place of punishment that you go to after you die. I think that's a safe, common definition for the idea of hell. And if you're wondering what does the Bible actually say about hell, at a most basic, literal level, nothing. Because hell is an English term. And the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew. And hell is not a term in Greek or Hebrew that just carried over into English. Hell comes from Anglo-Saxon, one of the precursors to English today. And in Anglo-Saxon, it meant to cover. And I have no idea how that connects to the idea of hell. But in Anglo-Saxon, it also was the name for the goddess in Norse mythology who would oversee the underworld. Interestingly enough, though, the underworld in Norse mythology was ice. It was frigid. So what this means is that at some point, a translator who wanted the Bible to be in English looked at the available terms in English, looked at what there was in Greek and Hebrew, and said, this is the best concept we have to describe what I'm reading here in these other languages. And that's how hell makes its way into the Bible. So the word itself doesn't appear. But some words in Greek and Hebrew get translated into hell. In the Old Testament, there are four words that will be translated into hell. They are Sheol, Abaddon, Hades, and Gehenna. When you look at what they actually meant, none of them really fits the definition of hell that I said. The idea of an eternal place of punishment that you go to after you die, none of these really fit that. The idea of Sheol 
is a place where every dead person goes. It's this vague, kind of dreary place. It's not horrible. It's not great. It's just the abode of the dead. The idea of Abaddon, it points to an abyss. It's a massive pit. It's also a word that's used for just general destruction. But again, that's not the idea of eternal punishment that you go to after you die. Hades comes from Greek mythology. And Hades is similar to Shale. Everyone, most everyone who was dead went to Hades. Not everybody, but most did. There was one place in Hades that was focused on punishment, but not Hades at large. And then Gehenna. Some of you who have been in churches, you may have heard about Gehenna. You may have heard a preacher say that Gehenna is a big trash pit in Jesus' day where they would burn trash. It's nice, it's convenient, but there's no evidence for that. That's an idea that came about around the Middle Ages, it looks like. When you look at archaeology, you look around Jerusalem, there's no evidence of any sort of massive trash pit that they would burn trash in. What Gehenna actually was, was a valley where idolatry would take place. And they would do things that were horrible and horrific, like child sacrifice would take place in this valley. But there wasn't really any burning of anything that we know of. Somehow, though, by the time Jesus is on the scene, Gehenna has become associated with flames, and we just don't know how that happened. We don't have enough historical evidence to understand what is actually, what the transition of that word was. Again, though, none of these four words actually fit this definition of eternal place of punishment that you go to after you die. A translator, though, said, with the available words that I have in Anglo-Saxon, this is the best one that I can use for this. When you jump to the New Testament, there are three words that get translated as hell. Two of them are the same from the Old Testament. They just carry over. Gehenna and Hades show up in the New Testament. There's a third one, though, called Tartarus. And it shows up one time. It shows up in 2 Peter. Tartarus is a place of punishment. It's actually the section in Hades in Greek mythology where people would be punished. But in the Bible, the one instance it's used, it's referencing demons only, not humans. In 2 Peter, it says that demons are in Tartarus, or in your translation, it might say demons are in hell being tortured. Then there's also the lake of fire in Revelation, but that doesn't exactly fit. In the lake of fire in Revelation, the beast ends up there. The false prophet ends up there. Some of the army of the beast ends up there. But it's not expansive. It's not extensive. So those are the terms that get translated as hell in the Bible. And they show up a total of about 30 times. You can see I have the numbers listed there. About 30 times these words show up. Here's where it gets even more interesting, I think, when you're talking about hell in the Bible. When you look at the Apostle Paul and his letters, he doesn't use any of these terms. Paul will refer to the wrath of God. At one point, he talks about eternal destruction, but that's different than eternal punishment. But Paul doesn't use these words. So Paul, when he was going around proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, he didn't think that this idea was important enough for him to even mention. The gospel of John, 
doesn't really mention hell or eternal punishment. Now, we're used to the Bible being all one book, but originally these were all separate documents that passed around. So the person who wrote the Gospel of John decided that hell or eternal punishment didn't actually need to be included in this gospel. And then the church affirmed that by passing it around and then put it into the canon, into our Bible. If you look at the gospel of Mark, it mentions Gehenna three times. It'll mention Hades zero times. It'll mention, mention weeping and gnashing of teeth zero times. The Gospel of Luke will mention Gehenna once, Hades once, weeping and gnashing of teeth one time. Matthew will mention Gehenna seven times, Hades two times, and then weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew six times. Did you see the difference there? Most of these words are concentrated in the book of Matthew. Matthew seems much more focused on the idea of punishment. Six out of seven times, weeping and gnashing of teeth shows up here in Matthew. So that's the evidence that we have. That's where the idea of hell comes from. That's a broad sketch of to how it develops. But what do we do with all this now? How do we interpret this? There's a few things I think that we can take away from this. One of these is hell simply isn't a focus of the New Testament. And it's not a focus of the Old Testament either. It's there, but it's not a focus. I said that it shows up 30 times. These words show up 30 times in the New Testament. That's out of 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. That's about 0.00001657%. Roughly. It simply isn't a central focus. There's a way of taking a biblical idea and making it unbiblical. If you take something that is mentioned in the Bible just a few times, but you elevate it to a place of central importance, it then becomes unbiblical. For example, there's a story in the book of Numbers where Balaam, a prophet, speaks to a donkey. I could come here, I could preach that story, and it's biblical. It's in the Bible. But then if I were to say to you all, this means that every single one of us needs to go and speak to donkeys. Go out today and go speak to a donkey. I've made it unbiblical. Pastor Jonathan would just check off his list because he talks to me every day. But do you see that if you, if you take something in the Bible and you elevate it, it becomes unbiblical because it's not about just the words. It's about the concepts that they point to. It's about the reality underneath those words. So I think far too often, preachers, Christians, have taken these words that we translate as hell and elevated them to a place of importance that the Bible simply does not give them. The Bible doesn't focus on the idea of hell. It's not central to the message. And the Apostle Paul and the writer of the Gospel of John said it doesn't even need to be mentioned when they were writing their documents. That's one thing I think is important for us. We shouldn't overemphasize this concept. Conversely, though, we have to remember that it's not just John and Paul that constitute the Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who do mention hell, are in the Bible as well. So, while we can't 
make it a central focus, we also can't act like the Bible never mentions it at all. The Bible does mention these ideas of some sort of punishment. And for me personally, when I read the scriptures, I do believe that there is going to be some form of punishment. But it can actually give us comfort. When you look at this world, there's so much in this world that is broken, that is evil. I think just last night, I got home, we had our Saturday night service, I got home and I read the news, and I'm sure many of you did, that a young man in Buffalo, New York, whose mind had been infected with racist conspiracy theories, picked up a gun, drove 200 miles, and murdered 10 people in a grocery store because they were black for no other reason. I see something like that and I get angry. I see that kind of evil and I want vengeance. I see that kind of evil and I get frustrated because my theology and my reading scripture tells me I cannot condemn that person to hell even though I want to. I don't get to dole out that punishment. It's out of my control. We are largely helpless. We can do things like say that that is evil. We can try to ward it off in the future but we don't get to condemn somebody to hell is what I think the Bible has told us over and over again. That's what I've preached for weeks here now. But these scriptures, these passages that push us to punishment, that let us know that there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think it can help us have trust that God will enact justice. That at some point, those wrongs that have happened in the world, those evils that are perpetrated that we are helpless to address, God will address it. God will take care of it. And we can trust in God's judgments. And when we see how God handles it, we will know it is right, it is good, it is just. These passages, I think, can also emphasize for us the importance of what it is we are saved from. They can help us to make us, make us grateful. So, we can't just act like it's not there. Jesus makes it pretty clear. Evil deeds will be addressed. He will take care of that. Our Lord will address that. He is the judge. He is the king. And those evil acts that we just can't seem to resolve in this world, God will resolve it somehow. The last thing I think we can look at and take from all this though, is that yes, at times, the Bible does point us to what it is we are saved from. But far more often, the Bible points us to what it is we are saved to. And in the Bible, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is much, 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 etc., 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 more important than hell. That's the focus of the New Testament. I mean, I mentioned that these words in the New Testament show up 30 times. Well, the word kingdom by itself shows up 162 times, mostly in reference to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. You add into that words like resurrection, words like life, words like Jesus, words like grace, words like mercy, and they far outweigh the mentions of hell in the Bible. Keep in mind that these parables that we're looking at, they begin by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. 
The point of the Bible isn't to get us to just focus on hell. It isn't so that we would lead with hell and scare people into doing something. The point of the Bible is to remind people that the kingdom of heaven is breaking into this world, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, hope can be found, life wins in the end, and that God is redeeming and restoring all of creation. That's the central focus of the Bible. That's the central focus even of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew does focus on Gehenna, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But more than that, Matthew focuses on the kingdom of heaven. It's mentioned 29 times in the gospel of Matthew alone. And again, that's not including resurrection. That's not including life. That's not including mercy. The message of the New Testament at its core is one of the kingdom of heaven breaking into this world, making things right, and God redeeming and restoring creation. And that should also be our message as well. That should be our emphasis as well. That is the biblical message. I love those first two parables here so much. Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as something that is valuable that we should pursue. A treasure found in a field. A very valuable pearl. Something that you should sell everything you have. Let go of whatever it is you're holding on to and pursue it because it is good, it is right, it is just, and it reflects God's love. Everything in the New Testament should push, push us towards that. At the end of the day, that should be the final note for anything we say about the work that our God is doing in this world. So, may we pursue the kingdom of heaven. May we lift the message of the kingdom of heaven up so that this world can have hope. And like Jesus describes in those parables, may we sell all that we have to let people know that God has broken into this world, that resurrection is real, and that God will right all the wrongs and evils of this world someday. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your justice is greater than our ideas of justice. We thank you that your justice is greater than our desires for vengeance. We thank you that you have saved us, that we are saved from punishment, Lord, and that following you, we can help people understand that they are saved also. So, Lord, push our eyes towards you. Focus our eyes on your kingdom. Don't let us get distracted, Lord, with trying to condemn people to hell, with trying to make people feel afraid. Help us to lay out your message as it is given to us in Scripture. Help us to hold the ideas in Scripture in balance appropriately in the way the Holy Spirit inspired these words of Scripture, Lord. Help us to proclaim the kingdom of heaven breaking into this world.
is a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. flowing down at the cross. 